find your sauce. Today we have Danny from Short Story Ventures with us. Danny has a very interesting story. He spent almost a decade in the mortgage industry. Then he created a software to digitize the mortgage industry that was very paper-led. And he ended up getting a $3.5 billion funding contract through this venture that he's been working on. Now, Danny pivoted. Danny started working on a lot of branding projects, started becoming a product designer, and now he does short story ventures, working with different brands that want to create an impact in today's society. And so I'm very excited to get into this conversation with Danny. I remember we were speaking last week about this, and even on our first intro call, I almost went too deep right away, but we have him here today. <laughs> excited to hear from his story, but Danny, would you want to introduce yourself to the people? Yeah, Nina, you did a great job of doing that for me, actually. So there's a I'm sure we'll get we'll dig into much more as we go through the podcast. But yeah, I'm Danny Matthews, and the founder of Short Story Ventures. And yeah, my, my career took a bit a bit of a turning point actually when when I ended up building a proof of concept essentially that managed to get funding. And it's interesting now through working with a lot of startups, how many of them believe they need like a really nice polished MVP in order to get funding. And I I, I uh, went through the opposite experience for that. So I'm always trying to encourage uh, early stage ideas to just get going and get going quickly. And, and someone will, uh, as long as you can tell the right story, people will under, understand your idea very quickly. Uh, so now I, I help a lot of very early stage startups. And as well as my own business, I'm director of Founder Institute, which is the world's largest pre-seed startup accelerator. Uh, so they started in Silicon Valley and uh, I'm really fortunate to be able to help almost 100 founders a year get started and get to market and get traction and funding and all kinds of fun stuff. And and the network that that brings is really exciting as well. So a lot going on in my world, but it's all uh, it's all very, yeah. very exciting. A lot going on for sure. So I want to dive into that MVP comment you just made. So I, a lot of founders do get into their own head saying, I need to spend $50,000, $100,000 to build up my product before improving it or going to market with it. What's some advice you'll give to a founder when building that MVP? Like, because like the reason why I bring this up, I read this book called Lean Startup, right? And they talk about in the e-commerce world, how to prove your concept and like, it's even like starting up a landing page, right? Getting your idea out there and just building an email list and showing the traction you could bring to an investor. But what's your mindset when it comes to building an MVP, whether it's a software-led or it's product-based, how would you approach it? So I'm glad you mentioned Lean Startup. Eric Ruiz is, you know, uh, I think he's about to celebrate 20 years of that book, which is incredible. And, uh, and the methodologies and the things he talks about are still right today. You know, and, and an MVP really is the answer to the question, what is the minimum you need to create in order to get to start to get some traction? Now, there's this big question about traction, right? What is traction? And some people would assume traction is money, which, you know, I would argue it is, you know, the, the best form of traction is not just revenue, but profit, you know, so the startups that bootstrapped right in the beginning Got, got to revenue generation very quickly, but not just that, they were profitable very quickly, were unicorns, you know. But not not exclusively. It doesn't have to be that way. One of the things I've learned being in this startup world is 
there is a million ways to do stuff. Like, there's so many ways you can do things and so many combinations and so many variables as well that, that there's no perfect way of doing things. But to, to go back to your question, an MVP is just what's the minimum you need to be able to get the result that you want as quickly as possible. For me, I, I was fortunate in that I understood the mortgage industry really, really well, not just as a broker, which was my role at the time, but um, I understood how the banks and the lenders made decisions. So my MVP actually was not even a, a system. You know, eventually I did, I went and got some off the shelf software and I put together a bit of a prototype. But the MVP for that was a logic string map, decision map, basically, to show someone how lenders make decisions so we could build the software that made those decisions for us or helped us go through that, that decision. Uh, logical decision tree process. So the MVP for me was that it was a it was a document with the decisions we needed to make, and the business plan or business model or revenue model that I believed um, we needed to execute in order to make it happen. That's all I had, and that was enough for a government organisation in the UK to say we will give you an exclusive contract to to control. 100% of what we call affordable housing mortgages in the, in, within the M25, which is basically London or Greater London, uh, which was three and a half billion quid to last about five, six years. Yeah, and it was it was off. It wasn't even a it wasn't even a product yet. You know, it wasn't even built. It was just a really strong, compelling reason backed up by. A business plan, essentially, a really compelling reason as to why this is going to work and this is going to solve a big problem. And yeah, and then the business model behind it and the revenue model behind it. That's what we needed. So an MVP is not, and you know, to your point, I would say almost every startup that I work with or every founder that I work with, an MVP to them is a working, polished prototype that they can put in someone's hands and it's not needed uh, in the majority of cases. So my encouragement to everyone is go analog first, like as much as you can do without hitting a screen um, is an amazing starting point because you don't spend any money. You just spend a bunch of time talking to people about what, what this means for them and understanding the market and the, and the target uh, target customer. And they, they'll tell you what they want and you can build from there. Uh, you don't need to guess. But I think a lot of what we do is we build something based on these assumptions and then we have to uh, you know, cross-correct our assumptions. It's just an expensive way of doing things if you haven't got the funding yet. So you know, every founder and every startup is in a chicken and egg situation. They need the traction to get the funding, but they need the funding to get the traction. So the best way to do this is to slow down so you can speed up meaning go analog, go basic, do the minimum amount you need to do to get the maximum amount of traction in the quickest time. And a lot of that can be done without going to app builders. Now, before we move on, I do want to say we live in an extraordinary time where if I wanted to go and build a prototype for an app, I could probably build it in a day without being a designer or a developer, because there's so many tools out there that will allow you to do it quickly. So 
<laughs> what that brings me to is analog is a great way to get it started. Got it. So even with when it comes to branding and then the offer, it looks like the way you approach it with Mor Morgi. Am I pronouncing it right? First time is it Morgi? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's okay. Morgi Digital Mortgages is what it's called. It. Yeah. <laughs> so when you're creating this this venture, it looks like you focus more so on the offer. You want to create a very strong offer that was irresistible for someone to say no to versus more so than packaging it and making it look all pretty. What's your, what's the balance do you see in that, right? Because like some brands could sell the, the story, the founder story, create a very nice brand persona around the overall company and they could maybe get funding that way. Or your, your role was, let me just create a very strong offer. I don't need the, the pretty packaging to make it great, the offer strong enough. How do you balance it both and how should founders think of both when approaching the MVP and approaching investors like yourself? And you, read, you led with that route when creating your service and your value, right? You, you weren't too concerned about packaging it very nice with a brand and a story, the founder story behind it. What's, what's the balance between these two? Because sometimes a company could create a, such a compelling brand because it's a compelling founder story. They might have an influencer backing up behind it, right? Where they could get investment from. But then you create such an offer so strong. So what's the balance between approaching these two ways when coming to an investor what's your thoughts there most people will see their brand as a one day thing as in one day when i get the funding when i'm in the right position i'll do my branding right and they see it as an exercise so they'll go and do it with you know uh, by themselves or with an agency or with freelancers or, or whatever however they do it and then time passes once the exercise has been done. Things change uh, like they do in startups. And then a few years down the line, they might do it again. And then again, maybe after five or seven years. And then again, after another 10 or however often they end up doing it. And what happens is we create these big leaps that we have to do. And the more you do that and the longer you do that for, the more risky it is to then rebrand or change things. And that's why you get to the stage of like multinational corporations and it's, and it's so expensive for them to rebrand. We're talking millions and millions and millions of dollars because the, not because the job is any different than when they were a small company. It's because the risk is so high of doing it that someone has to have an insurance policy somewhere, you know, so they charge so much money just in case a lot of it is contingency. So, my belief is treat your brand like your product. Do it from day one and do it basic and iterate on it regularly. Include it in your fortnightly sprints. Include it in your, you know, your traction or your operations or your, you know, whatever meetings or frequency you're having. Include it in that. Like, what have we learned this week? How can we iterate our message or how can we iterate our story? Or does that, does that conflict with our values? You know, these kinds of questions are reevaluating our brand all the time it is a living breathing thing in your business it powers everything from hiring the best employees to creating the the best advert or wh whatever it might be as simple as it as that sounds it powers everything so trying to find the balance between which is basically what i heard which is doing your brand and not doing your brand 
early on for a startup. Uh, I believe suicide if you don't do it. Because it would just become such a monster that it will end up causing more harm than damage, uh, more harm than good. Hmm. How about getting a trademark? It's very important to own your, your IP, but sometimes companies get declined from their trademark, right? Just because the, the person who's on your file might think it's very similar to another company. How would you, how would you approach if one of your brands been building something for a couple of years and then they get not- notification that, okay, our trademark has been declined? What's your thoughts there? Would you tell them to go register the trademark in another country? Would you tell them to go completely rebrand themselves or just kind of just shit on them because you should, they, they should have done this from the beginning, make sure they have the trademark. What's your thought process there? And is there a solution to a brand that doesn't have their IP in, in the country they want to register? Yeah, the short answer is you, you have to rebrand. You can't just do it in one country and not another if, if that's where you're going to operate. I mean, it depends, doesn't it, on on what the situation is at the time. But um, trademarks are great for protecting your brand. It's just an admin task. Like it's not. I don't think it's as big a deal as people create for themselves. I think it's it's much more it's more much more important to register trademarks and patents than, than it is sorry, patents and designs rather than trademarks. So, so I'm an advisor for a startup at the minute where they they have the design registered in the UK. And they're just about to get it designed everywhere else in the world because they realize that their product, they have the they have the, the pattern globally for what they've created, the combination of things that they've created, but they don't have the designs registered all over the world and in the UK. And by extending those design rights um, across the world, they can very easily claim markets. So they can go to Amazon and say, can you market and distribute our product and they can't do that with anyone else they they so they basically monopolize a market as a as a startup that hasn't even launched yet right so that's a smart thing to do because it gets you partnerships and it gets you it gets you collaborating with people that you might not have got before so that's a really smart thing to do trademarks on the other hand not so much i'm not a trademark lawyer but um it's good to register trademarks. It's good for protection. It's an admin task. Like if, if anything happens against your trademark or you don't end up being granted it or what for whatever reason, go and register a different one. There's no big deal. I think uh, um, there's been many brands, uh, Google, Amazon, Apple, Nike, they were all different names <laughs> right, right in the beginning and they changed it because whatever reason. And there are stories about you know big, big brands that did have trouble registering a name and, and getting a trademark, so they had to change it and those kinds of things. So, yeah, I think uh, there's a lot of weight put on naming and trademarks and things like that. And I think it's for early stage startups. I think it's it's uh, way overrated. Okay, so it's more so registering the, the design. So could you kind of elaborate elaborate on that a little further? Someone who doesn't understand the difference between registering a design and a trademark. And then they might be thinking about, okay, I got to register an LLC maybe too. Like what's the, like how do you register a design versus registering a trademark? And I, I know every country is probably different the way their processes work, but like in your experience, like how would 
registering a design be different registering a trademark because trademark could be a word you're registering could be a your logo at the same time so what is registering a, a design that differentiates from that yeah so trademark most of the time is the registration of a name a phrase or a word mark mostly so like a, how your how the word looks when it's designed as a logo or on a product or for example design rights is is different in the sense that it, it's the design as in the functionality of a physical product. So if you're creating a physical product, in, in this case of the example I gave, it's a cold water thermometer for like swimmers, lake swimmers and sea swimmers and um, people like that. So it's uh, so the design rights for that are how the product is constructed, like how its functionality works, mm-hmm. how it does certain things like float, uh, time, uh, change temperature, those kinds of things, right? temperature readings. And the importance of that is that no one else can create that functionality in a product the same way you have anywhere else, where, wherever it's registered. No one else could take the three or four components that he has and put them together in the same way to create that product. Okay, makes a lot of sense. So this last question about this trademark and, and design rights thing is, so let's say, let's say you're a product-based brand, right? And you have a name, say you you make cosmetics, but then another company has a similar name, has a registered trademark, but in a different niche, they might sell a different type of product, right? But their trademark category is the same as one you're applying for. Would you tell them to rebrand and create a brand new name or would you tell them to just keep going through as long as you could differentiate yourself in the online marketing world but they don't want to be screwed 10 years later thinking oh i don't have my trademark now i gotta sell my company and i don't own the ip to it like what's the what's the line where it's like no i gotta change my company name now versus it's just an admin task yeah that's a, that's a tough one i don't know in all honesty mm-hmm uh, I, I don't really have a straight answer for that. Uh, I think my gut feel is like if you if someone is giving you the opportunity, whether you like it or not, to change your name and back out something that could be a lengthy and painful process ten years down the line, I'd probably do it. I'd probably change the name. It's I'd take it as a as a hint, <laughs> like to. Uh, I think maybe it's because I'm a branding guy, not not really a trademark guy, but and I think because of that, you know, the whole concept of branding is like differentiation and relevance. So if you're struggling to differentiate yourself outside of a name, you've got bigger problems. <laughs> Just change the name. Uh, yeah, so I think that's probably my stance on it. Okay, and so what do you think about Twitter's re-rebrand? Twitter's going to X. Terrible. Absolutely, it's a complete suicide. And not just because of the visual rebrand of Twitter to X, it's how it was executed. So it was an in-house job that was done on a whim that had no communication behind it. So no, there was no, apart from like a few press releases on the day that they changed the logo, there was no communication around why it was changed or uh, apart from like, oh, Elon just wants to become more of a WeChat or whatever. <laughs> there was no communication or story around 
this is who we are. This is what we believe in and how we're going to change the world. And to reflect that, these are things that are changing, including our, like, that would have been a good, a good way to do it. But instead it was just like, it, it felt too much of a, like a just a, a a quick change like it was a, yeah, a quick switch on a, like a, on a whim no real reasoning behind it apart from this is my company now and i'll change what i want about it because we want to change the, the platform like it just doesn't make sense it would it would have made much more sense to change to start changing the platform towards you know in this case like a wechat for example, and then to rebrand visually and say, well, because we're changing, like we, we have to change our identity as we, as we change what the platform is used for. But instead, they, they went the other way around. And, and yeah, that for me, that doesn't work. That's, you want to follow the behavior of, of the platform and the market and what people are doing. You don't want to dictate the other way. You don't want to say, you know, put jitters down and say we're X now, and this is how we roll. Like, why not create a different company that does that instead? Um, but instead, they did it the, the other way around, which is this is it. We put jitters down X now, and this is what you need to do. Instead, they, they should have just started to implement the ideas they had and the changes that they wanted, and then said, well, now you know people are getting. People are getting the hint that we're changing and moving in a different direction. This is how we want to reflect that through a new brand and a new name and things like that. So, yeah, it was just, it felt a little bit too much on a whim. Like there was no real thought behind it. Um, mm -hmm. uh, felt like Elon was just kind of throwing his weight around. <laughs> I get that. And as well, the way he came into the company, acquired it, right? There's a lot of press, a lot of news around that scenario. And then making the quick switch to X like this. Do you think so? Based off what you said right now, it looks like it would have been a better approach if he was more open with the public. But hey, guys, we're thinking about making this change coming soon. And just kind of led with a more open approach with his community. Like, this is what's going to happen. Like, we're thinking about making a switch. These are the reasons why instead of just making the switch. You feel like that's a better way to rebrand when you bring in your audience big. Now it's like, guys, we gotta make this change. This is the reason why we're doing this. Instead of just being like, this is us now and join us if you don't, if you want to, or, or, or fuck off basically, right? So it's like, that would have been a better approach. I mean, that would have been a better approach because that would have been a intentional cull of his user base. That would have been like me going onto LinkedIn or whatever and saying, uh, look, I'm I'm about to move into the fashion industry. I know a lot of you that are connected with me didn't know I was into fashion. You thought I was, you know, into mortgages and startups and tech and things like that. If you're not into fashion, un unfollow, unconnect with me because then you won't see all the crap that I'm about to post. And instead, the people that are into fashion will stay here and they'll see all the stuff I'm going to post about fashion. You see what I mean? <laughs> like that would have been, that's a good thing to do. But if I just start posting about fashion, people are going to be like, what the hell is going on? Like what, what changed? Like yeah. you're a different person. Like we, we never even knew you. Do you know that that's just an analogy, but, but yeah, you see what I'm, what I'm getting at. Like it, it, that's why it felt like such a quick on a whim no thought behind it for me just because a much better way to do it would have been like 
to sit down with the family, you know, if we're sticking with analogies, to sit down with the family and say, look, I know you didn't know this about me, but I'm really into fashion. <laughs> and I'm going to go and chase my dream. Like, that would have been a good conversation to have, but that didn't happen. <laughs> I agree. And it's like, back to that family analogy, it's like, versus coming home, take your kids and wife for a drive, take them straight to the warehouse. So, hey guys, I just bought a warehouse for my new fashion <laughs> business, right? It's like, where did this come from? And yeah. so, no, I, I agree exactly that. Because at the end of the day, dealing with people, even though we're building online businesses through a screen, and at the end of the day, there's a person behind that screen who, who thinks like a human, right? And you have you can't yeah. forget that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to dive into some of the brands that you've been working with. Solo 60, very cool project, especially during COVID season, when a lot of business buildings have been vacant and you guys decided, okay, let's just go in and transform these vacant places into gyms. How was the, how did this start first off? And how did you handle logistics behind this? Cause every building is different, right? Bringing in equipment. How was your approach with making that happen and why this project too? Ben Alderton is the genius behind Solo 60, a really smart guy. When we, we first met through a, f- a connection of mine that heard what, what he was thinking about doing and, and saying, go and speak to Danny. He may, be able to, he may be able to help you with like branding and logos and things. So mine and Ben's relationship started off with a message on Facebook of him saying, hey, Danny, how much is a logo? Which is really funny. It was, it, it was, it was funny at the time because I was going through a, a period in my business as a designer at the uh, as a freelance designer at the time of trying to re-educate people about branding being more than design so it was really funny like i got messages every week from people that literally just said hey danny how much is a logo and it was like on one hand it was really frustrating but because uh, i just wish that i could re-educate people and on the other hand it was really interesting because it was my chance to kind of dig a little bit deeper into why people were just asking for, you know, logos and colors and, you know, topography and things like that, instead of talking about problems they want to solve and things like that. So there's, and this there's a really misconception about what uh, the job of a designer is or the job of a branding person is. But yeah, so I, I met Ben and we had, we had a chat and he's, he basically looked a personal trainer I have a really, I have a successful business at the minute. I have multiple personal trainers working underneath me, but I see problems. You know, everything's disjointed. We use about four different apps just to manage bookings and things. And I have a client, which I go to her house um, to help her train because she's a high up executive in a tech company. And uh, so I go and help her at her home. And I, and I think I've got a good idea, idea not only to help people feel empowered while they're working out by working out alone, but also a way to stop the, the uh, go to the high street and all these empty buildings and turn them into one person gyms, essentially. And he said, I want to call it Solo 60, but I, I really, I need some help with like, logos and design and things like that so we had a really long chat we had uh, uh, workshop days and uh, started working on the brand and what he wanted to change and the real the real deep-seated things that were driving his decision to start this company 
and I asked him, what, what's your goal? And he said, well, I'm going to need some funding. I'm going to need some investment. So at this point, I just need like pitch decks and things to get going. So we went through the whole process, like story and visual brand as well. We, we designed a very basic working prototype like on Adobe XD and uh, just had the first few screens ready so you could see that you could, you know, go onto the platform, go onto the app, book a session, pay for it, uh, job done, like really simple. And he took that to investors and said, give me some money. And and he was funded within really a few months uh, with everything that we did together. Uh, and he was funded at a valuation of a million pounds in the UK. And didn't even have a customer, like wasn't even launched. Uh, he's he's now, I think he's about to open another three uh, locations in London. So I think he's got five or six at the minute. Uh, he's about to open another three. He's valued at eight. Uh, at I think he's valued at eight eight point three million or something now. Yeah, and he's been in accelerated across America and expanding. And, uh, yeah, doing amazingly, but. Uh, as a as real as a real success story, not in like the fancy numbers uh, kind of perspective, but one just had this idea, had an experience in the industry that they thought was changing, and just went and did it. Uh, and what was fascinating about Ben really is that he, he didn't do a lot of validation. He just kind of had a gut feel and went with it. And I would, I would, I would never recommend that to anyone. <laughs> like <laughs> you want to validate it, but you know, he he just had this gut feel and this drive to just go and try it. And, and why wouldn't you if people are offering you money to go and do it? So, yeah, br- brilliant story. Ben's a really smart guy. Uh, we're still friends now. He moved right. to Sweden with with his girlfriend, and he's had a child. Uh, um, I, I joke to some people that he named his child after my child because they're both called Noah. Uh, but no, it, it, well, I don't think it was because of that. <laughs> uh, that's hilarious. <laughs> I want to dive into that comment you made where branding is more than just design. Do you want to elaborate a little bit on what you mean by that? And as well, when you approach founders like Danny and other founders, how do you convey that to them at the same time? I realized when I entered the design world, I entered it with no experience, no qualifications as a designer. And everything that I learned, I learned through uh, experience, through practice and people, meeting people and having conversations and exploring things and just asking for help when I needed it. And so it it would really, uh, it was really interesting to me when I'd meet people that were also designers that were fully qualified out of university and college and, you know, been working in the industry for 20 years. And they weren't, they weren't quite as advanced from a skill, from a technical skill perspective as I thought they would be. And I started to dig a little bit deeper into what makes a designer valuable like what is what is the difference? And I asked this to a guy who has done work for Nike and NASA and like and did the presidential logo for Barack Obama. Like, and I, I asked, I've asked a few designers now. Like, what is the difference between that logo you did for a hundred grand 
and the one that pe- the ones that people do for a hundred pounds or a hundred dollars, and and he basically said some technical stuff and then followed on with, but really it's just the balls to ask for it is probably the easiest answer. And I was like, that can't be true. That there has to be something else behind it. So I've always been very interested in uh, psychology, philosophy, human behavior. I've got a, I'm a bit of a neuroscience nerd, very interested in like how nutrition affects our body and our biology and things like that. So I've always been a little bit obsessed with um, figuring out why people do certain things. And when I entered the design world, I found that I, I was drawn very easily to consumer behavior and why they buy things. And I came upon this realization that branding probably needs a rebrand, right? Which is quite ironic. We we need to start thinking about it in a a different way. We've come such a long way from prodding cattle with a cast iron rod. We've been through industrial age and a digital age. We're about to go into like Web3, virtual reality, augmented reality world, meta, verse, and all those things. And yet our understanding of branding means for a business um, ha- hasn't really changed much. So you can go and ask five people what branding is and they give you a different answer. A lot of the coaching consulting world talk about vision and values and things like that. But designers talk about logos and typography and colors and imagery and uh, graphics and all kinds of things. And you go and speak to like a virtual assistant or an executive assistant, someone like that, and they'll probably talk to you about something completely different around branding. The technical among us will, will start to regurgitate quotes they've heard, like like Jeff Bezos says that branding is what people say about you when you're not in the room. And I'm not saying that anyone's wrong. I'm actually saying that everyone is right, and that's part of the problem. It's like it's such a broad thing. Like I said towards the beginning of this conversation, it's such a foundational thing to a business. It's it's broad, you know? So a lot of us take an understanding in different ways. So I've learned over the years that I'm not going to try and define it for everyone, but one thing I have come to understand is branding in its, at its very, very core is the bridge between experience of life and why we buy things. So what happened in your life, your experiences, what happened to make you feel like you need to buy a certain product? Like what is influencing you to buy that product over that product? Because it's not advertising. Right? It's not get shown an advert and go, oh, I'm going to buy that just because I've been shown an advert. There's something behind it. There's a reason that we're compelled to buy certain things. Now, that might be the story that the company's telling you about what it means to spend money on that thing over another one, which most of the time my belief is that it is. But there's another driver. It's not just because it's cheap or it's good quality or whatever it is. There's there's a there's an experience during our life that's that's made us the person that we are today, and the mm-hmm. reason that we're choosing one product over another. It's relatable experiences, exactly. Mm-hmm. Like even with Nike, right? You want to feel a sense of inspiration, right? When you want to feel a sense of inspiration. Nike comes to mind, right? And that's why you probably go simulate with the Nike community or might go to the Nike store to go buy something because you want that feeling, right? That you grew up with. So 
No, I, I, I agree completely. It is a very broad term and it can't be just defined because everyone's perspective is different, but I like the way you said it. Everyone's perspective is right at the same time. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. Yeah. What do you feel are some mistakes people make when it comes to making a brand? Uh, thinking too so one of the main things is when, when people are thinking about their brand and people them most of the time they think that people make purchasing decisions or buying decisions because of how they want to feel so they focus their marketing on like how do i want to make this customer feel you know valued or like that they can buy something that's good value or lower price than someone or whatever it is a lot of the time, it's it goes one step further than that. And you have to think about not only, you know, if someone buys something from you, are they buying it because of how they want to feel or are they really buying it because of how they want others to feel about them? And that happens, the most obvious industry that happens in, funny enough, because we've already said it, but it's fashion, right? Is Nike, for example. So I'll tell you a story that happened to me about 15 years ago, way before I was in design and branding, but it always stuck with me because it was a fascinating realization when I came to the design world. And that is that about 15 years ago, I watched a documentary on the TV and it was a guy that went in research of sweatshops in Malaysia and uh, Bangladesh and China and I remember a scene very specifically where he was walking through the warehouse uh, along, along a big, long table. And at the end, it had like a, a wall. And I could see all these things on there. And I didn't know what they were. But he was walking along these tables. And there were pairs of jeans all lined up, one after the other, all the way down these tables. And you could see all the workers behind, you know, sewing away. And... He, the guy that was with him who worked in the warehouse was basically telling him how these were all made. Uh, and the, the presenter of the documentary system, almost you could see the penny drop. And he stopped him and said, wait, all of these jeans are made here. And yet they're going to different shops uh, and they're, they've got different prices and, and you know, in different places. And the guy said, yeah, they're, they're all made here. And the realization was that it, you can buy something from two different places at two different prices, but essentially the cost is the same. The, the reason that you're buying one over another is what? It's, it's the perception that they've put in your mind about what it means to buy that product. So he carried on along this. And, and the thing at the end that I couldn't tell what it was in the beginning was a huge uh, like a plaque of sunglasses and he said great so the so where are these from where are these going and you could see all the logos on them right and uh and at that point it, it was another realization where he was asking him where are these going and who's going to buy these and, and the guy said this pair of sunglasses is exactly the pair of uh, as this uh, exactly the same as this pair of sunglasses this one is twenty dollars in Walmart, and it's going to the US. This one is Prada, and it's three hundred and eighty-five dollars, right? And they were exactly the same, just with a different logo. And um, and I, I told this story about five years ago, and someone said, "Why do you, why do you think that is?" 
The person who buys a pair of sunglasses from a supermarket has probably seen them and said, they look nice on me. I'm going to feel comfortable. That's that's cool. I'll protect my eyes or whatever. I'm going on holiday. All these very surface level. Like I'm buying it. The person who bought the Prada sunglasses for $385 instead of 20 bought them because someone else knows they paid $385 for them. And you know sometimes sunglasses look stupid <laughs> like on people they're wild right but it's a reflection of who they are i paid the money for these sunglasses because uh to show a worth or a a like a persona or whatever you want to call it right they buy the sunglasses not because of how they want to feel but how they want other people to feel about them and it's very different from the other people who bought it from the supermarket and the smart thing about this is they know that these two people will never meet so no one will ever have the conversation oh they're like my sunglasses but mine's got Prada logo and i pay for that moment they're never going to meet they're different markets right so it's very that encounter each other and when I dug into this story and this this memory I had of seeing this documentary, everything changed in how I worked with clients. And I realized that my value wasn't design. It was the experience I had through building my own business, actually, that was going to make me valuable as a designer. So whenever I had the messages of, how much is a logo? My immediate response was, what's the problem? And that ch- that changed the complete trajectory of my business. That is very interesting story because even in the fashion, any product-based business, right? It's like you can be making a hoodie in one factory and in that same factory, LVMH is in that factory or Off-White's in that factory and everyone's making this in the same factory. But in the day, one price for a share will be 300 bucks and another price for a share will be like 50 bucks. Right. And mm-hmm. so it comes down to what creates that perception, like in, in your mind, like, like how would you create a more premium product if that same, like, let's talk about fashion, right? Because fashion in the day, it's clothing, it's fabric, right? There's no innovative, innovative technology involved in it. Right. Yeah. So what, what stops or what creates off white the ability to sell a t shirt for 350 bucks that's 100% cotton where I could buy a 100% cotton t shirt? at my local Walmart or local superstore. What are the factors you think that go into that? Supreme, like Off-White and Supreme and this kind of, uh, the culture that that created was something that happened over time, but a really smart strategy, which I, I don't know if it was, if it was intentional or not, but Virgil, for example, was, was, he was very well connected. He uh, he was part of the culture of you know music and fashion. You know, early days. You know, mm-hmm. he didn't just like snap and become like a big thing. It was slow and steady. Uh, but the smart thing that he did do was he went top down. So, and what I mean by that is what a lot of brands do product or service or tech or SaaS or whatever, I've seen it in all all different walks, is they go, I'm going to get traction with like friends, family, public, influencers, celebrities. They kind of do that in, in a hierarchy. 
what Virgil did is he went top down. He went, who is the most influential person? Where most, and then everyone raced to it, right? So that is, I think, something that people miss quite a lot is the fact that Virgil spent a lot of time building relationships before he released anything. When he did release something and it got on the feet of, or the, or the back of someone big, he knew that that would just trickle down. So, and think about all the brands that you think have gone viral over the last decade. Almost all of them had a celebrity or influencer starting point, or at least it seemed that way. And that that is that was the difference for them, really. Now, it's it's not an easy thing to do, obviously, and yeah, it takes years and years and years of cultivating those relationships. A very smart thing to do. So. Uh, so yeah, in order to create that perception in someone's minds that you are maybe luxury or you're worth something that another brand isn't, you have to create that narrative. You, you yeah, literally have to you have to build that and do that by just doing things the way that other people don't do. If you want something that someone else doesn't have, you have to do something that no one else does. And for Virgil, that was let's start from the top. And not worry about the people that can't afford it right now, because when they see that, you know, Drake's wearing it, they'll find the money, you know, <laughs> which is a, an amazing thing. An amazing kind of part of funding is that whole psychology around money. And it's funny how people find the money for this stuff. Right? That's hilarious. right. But, but people do, right? And they'll find a way to pay for it. And there is a market out there for that. Some people feel too scared to go in the premium luxury category, right? But the fact, I really like the way you said is that he was already in the scene much before he created off-white brand, right? Like he did Kanye's merch when he went on tour with Kanye before that. He was part of Kanye's inner team as well too, right? And even if you look at someone like Jerry Lorenzo, right? Who does Fear of God. People think Fear of God just blew up like that, but thing is jerry lorenzo used to be a club promoter for over a decade and one of the highest high, highest um valued clubs in la he built all the relationships even before starting clothing brand so when he first launched he had all the contacts he needed right yeah. so it's it's not an overnight success and this going that route when you have relationships built it, it's a very tough route to go as well too right because to be that person that people want to associate with build those authentic real relationships it's uh, it, it's it's his own mountain to climb, right? So it just depends on, on which route you want to go. But yeah, these they they aren't overnight successes, and I think there is definitely a strategy behind them that take time to implement. Yeah, there's a, every now and again I'll see a post on social media go around about the fact that Tiffany and Co sells a paper clip for like five hundred dollars or something, and I'm like, yeah, those people, you know. Uh, saying things that are quite uh, aspirational or inspirational and they'll say like you know just remember your worth you know when you see this it's just a paper clip and it's 500 dollars or whatever and, and other people will be complaining like why would anyone spend that money on a pay and my response is always the same which is uh audrey hepburn 1948 or whatever that because that is the reason Tiffany and Co. have this is because of something that happened 70 odd years ago. So 
don't just think Tiffany went, we're just going to release a paper clip that's like silver and $500. They, they know they can do that, right? But the brand equity that they've built has been built over the last 100 years or whatever. It's, they didn't just do it because they wanted to make a bit of cash, right? So Tiffany and co understand the kind of brand that they've built. But they also understand that their brand that they built 70 years ago with Audrey Hepburn can't last forever. Hence why they bring out Tiffany and co Nikes or, you know, they realize that they're going to adapt to an audience and tap into younger markets and things like that. They're not stupid. They, they can see it, but they just need to do it to do it in the right way at the right time with the right product. And I think they need a really good thing. There was this campaign that Tiffany Co. done recently, and they got a lot of bad PR for it. And I, I may be forgetting exactly what the campaign was, but I was wondering if you remember it. It was, I believe, a Mother's Day campaign that they recently launched, and it was just completely off-brand. Do you know which one, which one I'm talking about? No, I don't think so. Hmm. Okay. Was it an American campaign? No, no, it was, it was some Mother's Day campaign. But anyways, I'm, I'm forgetting right now, so I'm just going to leave it. But definitely look into it. It's a very interesting story of of culture and trying to play on the recent trends for, versus not being on brand. And a lot of people have been doing that as well. If you're looking in other aspects, right? If you look at the George Floyd thing that's happening or even yeah. when the LGBTQ community, where the way people hop into conversations that they might not be for them right just to be in that space and it's not on brand like even the there's the 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 beer company i believe is budweiser right they did a campaign with kylie jenner right and budweiser is it's a very known beer here in canada right and it's known more so for the hard working blue collar class and then they see a campaign with kylie jenner drinking the beer right and it's like is this on brand or you think of like the Kendall Jenner one, which is like a Coke commercial. And then I believe there's a human rights protest happening. A Kendall Jenner walks through the middle with her Coke can. And it's like, okay, you guys are definitely trying to leverage the Kardashian family, but is this on brand yeah. for you? And, and look what it did for Budweiser. Their sales took a huge hit because of that. And so it's about, okay, let's be on the market trends, but at the same time balance our own authentic brand and what's your thoughts regarding that like do you how do you feel like people should capitalize like on the current trends the market's always changing the culture's always changing but at the same time sticking true to who you are do you have any thoughts about that this is this is such a normal thing for big corporations to do and it's like people see through it um so what happens in big corporations is marketing departments sit around and the board says We've got a target to hit, like a financial target to hit in the next 90 days. Go make it happen. Someone in that company at some stage says, let's do the Kardashians. And they go, well, yeah, obviously, if we give them enough money, we'll get enough money back because they're massive. Everyone knows them, like biggest celebrities on earth or whatever. And they just assume that it's a numbers game. And it's not. It's a brand game. It's a story game. So, yeah, it the reason that that didn't do well is because it didn't make sense. And I think we forget in the, in the pursuit of being different, people forget to be relevant. 
because they think we need to stand out, we need to do something loud, we need to do something different. But while trying to do that, they lose their relevance and appropriateness to, to what their brand believes in and what their brand stands for. And that's what happens in those situations. So there needs to be an audit, it's not like a, a layer. Like <laughs> There has to be a layer before things go so far in, in business where you, where every decision you make runs through the brand first. And this is why uh, uh, there's a big conversation around like how, how useful are these things called values, you know? And a lot of people see them as external tools to tell your team or your staff or your customers that you're good people or whatever it might be. When actually they should be internal tools. They should be things that you make decisions on. You should have like a decision-making filter with your values. <laughs> like you should be doing this, like shall we get a Kardashians to do the ads and running it through this filter and saying, oh, probably not, you know, mm-hmm. probably not quite us. Or making a very intentional decision that it's not us, but maybe it's the direction we're going and we need to test it or try it, you know, granted. But yeah, there there has to be some kind of filter. And the filter is your brand. It's what you build up internally, culturally, externally, whatever, however you want to do it, as to what people believe your brand is, who, why people believe you exist in this world beyond just making a few a few quid or a few bucks right so yeah that's uh but i think it's very misunderstood the whole values vision kind of thing in branding i agree it's more than just a page in your brand style guide right it's more than just in your brand house and that's it it's like everything should be looked back to the trickle down to the foundation of who we are as Mm -hmm. like the ethos of the company so i couldn't agree it makes me uh, it makes me worry whenever I walk into a workplace or an office and they have frames and pictures around the office that say their values with like that. It makes me very worried, like that they need to remind people every day. <laughs> That's a good point. It should just be known. Mm. Yeah. So, Danny, this was a this was a great conversation, and I really feel like me and you could just keep going on and on to, to talking about this, but. Let's end it here. And I want to ask, where could people find you? Where could early startups find you to do maybe some local design work, talk about branding, go to market strategies? Where's the best place to contact you? Yeah, if you want to check out and just see some content and see what I'm about, uh, LinkedIn's probably the best place. Uh, just look for me. I'm Danny Matthews. Or uh, if you want to forward slash it, I'm forward slash the actual Danny. Just to, just to make sure everyone knows I'm a Danny by birth, not a Daniel. <laughs> Uh, so just to make that point there or um, go check me out at shortstoryventures.com lovely Danny great chatting and everyone thank you for listening today and talk to you soon thanks Manny